Hello, Lil Swipes, and welcome to the audio version of what has been hyperbolically called the internet's favorite newsletter, The Swipe Up. I'm Erin Moon, and this is episode four. So the other day, I was driving back to Birmingham from North Carolina. I went to Asheville to do some running, and on my way back, I stopped at an unfamiliar Chick-fil-A in Georgia. Now, I expect Georgian Chick-fil-A's to have it together more to an intense degree than any of the others. It's a home field advantage, and any one of the Cathy's could theoretically stop by at any moment. And it was during the lunch rush, and the parking lot of this particular Chick-fil-A was really small. And as is their way now, a pack of high schoolers, a pack of high school homeschoolers armed with safety vests and a better sense of life direction than I've ever had were directing traffic and smashing orders into iPads. I parked and I walked in because I'm still out here trying not to live that deep vein thrombosis life. So as I passed the drive-thru, a young customer was panicking. I could see her like desperate gesticulations to the safety vest homeschoolers. Her voice was rising an octave higher to in an attempt to convey the seriousness of the situation. The line was long, she was late for something, and she was trapped. She wanted to turn around. And from my vantage point, it looked like her only option was to stay in line and just suffer the consequences. Because once you get into that, the belly of that machine, I don't think you can get out unless you have chicken in your hand. Unfortunately, desperate gesticulations chose the wrong safety vest homeschooler to solve this problem. We're going to call this particular uh, Chick-fil-A employee Thorn. Feels like a good homeschooler name because it's nature and it has a double spiritual meaning. Thorn, bless him, he did not have a fully matured frontal cortex to deal with all of the problems needing to be solved simultaneously. Thorne looked at this poor woman like a musical theater major suddenly transported to the mission control room at NASA in the middle of the Apollo 13 crisis. When a hundred percent underqualified to be there, but also 100% cognizant of how much he does not know, painfully aware of his shortcomings, wondering if a rousing rendition of I Dreamed a Dream would solve this problem, desperately wishing he had paid more attention in Algebra 099, still with the understanding that he was in the tall grass now. Traffic was backing up. Thorne continued to stare into this woman's eyes as if he could make her disappear by sheer force of will. The wheels were beginning to fall off at the Douglasville Chick-fil-A, and then suddenly, like a beatific entity, Angela appeared. I know her name was Angela because I asked later. Um, If Thorne was the Frodo Baggins at this operation, and he was, Angela was like Galadriel. Her powers were so strong, her life force so immensely overwhelming, Thorne seemed diminished and gray in her shadow, as if years of youth group being his sole level of socialization had left him weak and frail. Angela assessed the situation and immediately jumped into action. She calmly removed Thorne from the equation. She firmly stopped the flow of traffic leaving the restaurant so that desperate gesticulations would have enough turnaround room. She guided that van through a 10-point backup that would make Nick Saban sign her up for the process on the spot. She shouted encouragement as desperate gesticulations left the parking lot and drove to whatever ill-timed appointment she remembered she had while inside the belly of the beast. In the moment, 
Angela's safety vest and red polo faded away, and we few that witnessed this taking of the charge felt lifted to a higher plane of existence. Now, she walked over to Thorne after this problem was solved, who was probably equal parts in love with and terrified of her, and gently placed her hands on his shoulders. I happened to be walking by them at this point, and I heard her say, This is hard, but people are counting on us for their chicken. Get back in there. You can do it. Little swipes, a word has been received from Angela, our lady of the woods of Lothlorien. People are counting on us for their chicken. I know December is hard, but we can do it because Angela is allowing us to acknowledge the hard, but giving us the power to get back in there. We can do it. Just imagine Kate Blanchett staring at you with big, beautiful blue eyes saying this task was appointed to you. Listen, I hope these last couple weeks of 2019 are great for you. And if they're not, I hope that you can remember that even now, Thorne is back at it at the Douglasville CFA, safety vest strapped tight, imbued with heretofore unknown and unseen confidence, taking orders and directing traffic, buoyed because the good people of Douglasville were counting on him for their chicken. Merry Christmas, everybody. I'm so beyond grateful for you, and I can't wait to see you guys in 2020. Let's get to the swipe up. Okay, so this month's questions are sourced, again, directly from Instagram, delivered straight to you with more thought and effort than you probably ever dreamed someone would give to a a newsletter. So uh, at Nathau124 asks, can you make a want, need, wear, read Christmas list, but for Zac Efron? And has my life been leading up to this question? Maybe. Did I spend way too much time on this? Most definitely, but I feel like I I gave it the respect the question deserved. So, Um, okay. So want. I want Zach to be in a committed relationship with someone who loves him for his ab work and his heart work, someone who is not intimidated by his celebrity, someone who is obviously comfortable being outside and working out. This is why I can never be with him. It's the only reason. Please don't worry about it. Someone who gets the pressures of fame and expectation. This is why I believe in my heart of hearts that Zach and Zendaya belong together. I know that he is a good bit older than she is, but I feel as though she is wise beyond her years and she is grounded for a 20-year-old. I know that sounds dumb when I say it out loud, but I think it's true. Need. Zach needs a good part. Now, what I could do here is I could remove Kit Harrington from Marvel's Eternal property and replace him with Zach. Okay, I will do that, actually. Please do not yell at me. It was either remove Kit or remove Richard Madden, and I'm not removing Richard Madden. Um, But I will also ask the universe for a big screen adaptation of the perfect movie musical starring Zac Efron, Sondheim's Company. Zac as Bobby, a single New Yorker unable to commit to a relationship. It's great music to showcase those pipes. He's a cutie. It'll work. It's a smash. Netflix, call me. Where? I'm ready for Zac to return to his natural hair situation and the not weird beard situation. Please return to regularly scheduled programming. But spicy take, and I put this in the newsletter, I don't hate the mustache. I put a picture in there that if you're anti-mustache, I think you'll reconsider. I'm just putting it out there. 
Okay, read. I need for Zach to read East of Eden. Then I need for him to become obsessed with an updated adaptation. Please do not yell at me about the James Dean version. I get it. It's great. But can we we can have a new thing. It's okay. Um, Zach is Adam. He's too old to be Cal now, guys. Don't yell at me. And also, this is his first directing project. It will be the thing that propels him back into good Hollywood parts, which is what we all want for him. Merry Christmas, Zach. May all my dreams for you come true. So, oh, hi, it's Kay asked, how do you recommend dealing with critical feedback? I struggle in this area. So critical feedback is tough because no one wants to be publicly or privately called to the carpet, but obviously none of us could grow as people if we weren't willing to be critiqued. I think I might have thicker skin for this than most because of, is she going to insert another theater reference into this newsletter? Yes, I am the theater. Uh, when you major in theater, you have what's known as juries. Basically, a panel of your professors does annual critique of your skills. You're forced to stand there on stage while they talk about how you don't receive direction well or you're consistently went to the donut stop instead of showing up for lighting on time. And you just have to stand there and take it. And when you're in a show, every night you do rehearsal notes. And there's no, I know you said you wanted me to move upstage here, but I really felt like my character would do a downstage move there. It's, okay, thank you. And then you swallow all of your feelings so this isn't the last time you get cast. So for me, criticism is worth evaluating from the following people. Is it coming from a place of neutrality? If you are yelling criticism at me or DMing me with hard, passionate thumb typing, it's just not valid to me. If you are a person that I trust, do you have a track record for being on my team? Do I know you have my best interest at heart? Do I know you in real life? These things matter. If the answer is yes, you may proceed to tell me I'm acting like a butt. I can't say it'll go well, but I will do my best. If not, you don't know me. You don't know my life, and you're not in my accountability group. So I also tend to make up wildly specific scenarios in my head about people hating me or finding me annoying because of how they reacted to something that I did or didn't do or said or didn't say. But rarely does anyone's criticism of you come from a place of hate. And it's easy to tell when it does, which makes it simple to write off, in my opinion. I don't have to respond to the woman in my DM saying my post was flippant when I know it wasn't Karen. She's not in the circle of trust, and if she wants to unfollow me, by all means. It's easy to say, take criticism seriously, but not personally, but it's almost impossible to put that into practice. I'm also a very slow processor, so if you've got something you need to critique me on, I hope you've planned for some lag time because I'm going to be non-responsive for a good 48 hours. My natural inclination is to start explaining why I did something like I did and all the brilliant reasons why my goof up was actually the byproduct of caring too much or working too hard. And if that doesn't work, a good lashing out will just also suffice. So as you can tell, I'm very good at taking criticism. I'm sure you're glad you came to me for advice. In the newsletter, I linked an article from NIC about how emotionally intelligent people handle criticism, and I hope that maybe it will be helpful to you as well. So when Sane asks, what's your favorite Christmas hymn and why? In order, they are, one, O Holy Night, all the verses for Maximum Bang. Two, Joy to the World, the Nat King Cole version, Makes Me Cry. And three, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. These are theologically on point. They have great music and sound amazing in the dark at the end of a Christmas Eve service by Candlelight. I actually did a whole breakdown on biblically debunking your favorite Christmas carols on the Bible Binge Patreon this month. The best research I found was from Good King Wenceslas, who I found out had a brother named Bolslaw. You can't make this up.
I only make two kinds of cookies. I make Toll House break and bakes and then these ginger bacon molasses cookies. They are perfect and salty and sweet and smoky and bacon fatty bobatty and they will give you clogged arteries so you should enjoy. I put the recipe in the newsletter. You can go look at it. Um, but they are wonderful and um, I hope you like them. You should like them. They're delicious. Um, and listen, so many of you asked great questions this month that I've already answered in swipe ups of the months past. So be sure to go to erinhmoon.substack.com uh, and scroll down to see some of the older versions of the swipe up. So this month's essay, I have been holed up in a house in North Carolina doing it very serious reading for a new, very serious link guide that will be available for pre-sale in January. I love making these Lent guides, but to call them fun would be a stretch. Uh, Lent is not inherently fun, but that's okay. It was during a break between studying why Jesus calls a woman a dog in Mark 7 and the use of Hendiades in John 3 that I needed the most opposite content on this planet. And what is furthest from a character study on Barabbas? Hypersexualized merman ornaments, clearly. So a couple weeks ago, I got very involved with finding the weirdest ornaments uh, I could possibly locate. You guys, some of you on Instagram sent me your ornaments. Y'all are weird, but I love you. Um, and like a homing beacon for specifically zeroing in on sequined hams and cinnamon sugar covered angels from 1987, I delighted in them all. And then we found the Holy Grail. And I've got the pictures of all of these in the newsletter, so go check them out. And there's so much going on amongst the Yuletide branches. This is a merman stripper cop. Um, he has a belt with handcuffs and a gun and a shirt that looks like it's tucked into his fins. I just have a lot of questions. Um, it, he looks like Scott Disick. How is his shirt tucked into his mermaid tail? Is this some type of underwater firearm? Do mermen shirts wear shirts and why? Do mermen wear shirts and why? Are aviators necessary under the sea or are they simply a part of the stripper costume? What exactly is a titillating strip show for a group of Nashville bachelorette mermaids? And look, I thought that it was just one very specific, overly sexualized merman stripper cop, but little swipes. Some of you let me know that this is a whole line of these ornaments. And you bet your glittery, crime-fighting merman tail, we're going to do a deep dive. Do you get it? Diving because of mermaids? Look, I know that I should be bringing you good Advent content or something deeply spiritual, but my brain is broken right now. My kids wanted to know the nitty-gritty specifics of Jesus pooping during Advent last night. I've misplaced two Christmas presents. The impeachment is happening. I just need a break. So maybe you do too. So let's go. Let's just dive into some of the worst Advent content that's ever been created. And let's look at some of these merman ornaments. So this is the greatest underwater show. This is a merman with a whip, and he has on a spangly Hugh Jackman jacket, but it's open to reveal a six-pack. He's also wearing a top hat. Uh, the culture of hats underseas seems far-fetched. Would hats stay on underwater? The only movies I've ever seen that take place underwater are The Little Mermaid. No hats proper there. Some hair accessories, but you can pin those in. Are they pinning their hats? And The Mermaids of Mako Island on Netflix. And there are no hats within those mythologies. 
It just seems as if with the currents and the fast swimming, hats would not be ideal. And also, do you need a hat in the depths? Are they only purposeful for keeping the sun out of one's face? Anyway, the hat is the least interesting part of this Hugh Jackman fever dream. What would a mer people circus look like? We all know the circus to be tone deaf at best, abusive and horrific to animals and workers at the worst. So would mer people who are half oppressed animal group and DNA makeup understand this about their fellow sea creatures? I've always imagined mer people to be very socially aware regarding things like climate change, but maybe that doesn't translate to social constructs surrounding freedom for circus animals. Didn't King Triton ride in on some gigantic dolphin carriage? Is there PETA in the ocean? Is this ringleader a stripper or just very into his chest? Okay, so this next one, I guess, is a veterinarian merman. It's not even mildly feasible. He's got a glittery red tail. He's wearing a belt. He's holding a dog. The dog has a collar that matches the belt. There's a stethoscope around the vet's Neck, and also he's shirtless. Give me like a freaking break. Unless that puppers is half fish, this is an outrage. Someone in this equation can't turn water into oxygen, and someone doesn't have legs. The only way this veterinary clinic can work is if some sort of floating dock where humans bring their dogs to the animal science major merman, and he holds the dog above the water while he does a checkup. And the matching belt-collar combo leads me to believe we're supposed to think this doggo is Dr. Ted's. A merman can't have a dog. Their biospheres eliminate each other. They cannot coexist. Okay, and then we have just some really problematic. This is, a, I guess, a Cajun mermaid. He's drinking a beer. He has a blue glittery tail with belt loops. The tail has belt loops. I don't know. And then he's wearing a halter top with a crawfish on it and holding a paper bucket of craw what looks like a Cajun boil, like crawfish and corn on the cob, maybe some red potatoes. Look, ignore the fact that this descendant of Ariel is consuming the flesh of a descendant of Sebastian and wearing an image of it as a taunt. Ignore the fact that the paper tray would not hold up underwater. Ignore the fact that this merman has belt loops built into his anatomy. This merman has corn on the cob in the depths of the ocean, and I have some questions. Okay, finally, the last one. This is a two-picture. This is a, a glittery blue merman. Again, belt loops built into anatomy. Uh, hanging from the belt loop this time is like a, like a tool belt. He's wearing a tank top. You can see the band of his underwear. I... I don't know. I didn't know that they wore underwear, but he's got a tank top and he's like wiping something off of his face so you can see his abs. Okay. Look, look, guys, I'm not trying to romp on anyone's ding dong here, but what the actual hell? Is he wearing underwear? He looks like a mer plumber, Polly D, wearing a tank top to unclog your toilet. I've never, ever in all my born days seen a plumber wear anything but as many barriers between them and your feces as humanly possible. What is he wiping off of his face to highlight those chiseled abs? Did something spray him from your toilet? If this is sexy, I urge you to seek a psychoanalyst very quickly. Oh, but wait. They provided a picture of the back. First of all, the tool belt is falling down over the fin. Then there's another belt, which you thought was the same one that was hooked into the tool belt, but it's not. The mer fin is being pulled down so that you can see his butt crack. So it, 
you just got to really go look at it because it looks like also now he's wearing cheekless underwear. I don't know. The whole ornament is a setup for a sexy plumber's crack joke. Can someone explain what a plumber needs with the tape measure in his tool? Do they measure a lot of things? I don't know. I don't know. No wonder there is a war on Christmas. We cannot be trusted with this most sacred of holidays if we can't even get some merman ornaments to be fantasy realistic. I just want to end this with, I remember when I was in the eighth grade, I had an English teacher named Mrs. Coleman. She was the perfect teacher, strict, but you wanted to please her because you had respect for her. You gave your all in sentence diagramming and the literary critique of the outsiders because she gave her all to you. Anyway, one day she wrote on one of my essays that if I applied myself, I might actually be a good writer, which is such a burn and also tough love inspirational content. Anyway, I just wanted to conclude this analysis of Merman Christmas ornaments by saying this is what she hath wrought when she encouraged me, and I hope she's happy. Merry Christmas, Mrs. Coleman. Okay, Little Swipes, that is a wrap on this month's audio version of The Swipe Up and a wrap on... 2019. Don't forget, there is a ton that doesn't make it into the audio version, so be sure to read the rest of the newsletter for links I love, my monthly Twitter Hall of Fame, and more. Also, just as a reminder, you can get my newest resource, The Comfortable Words, at erinhmoon.com slash store, and Lil Swipes get 20% off with code SWIPEUP. Thanks for swiping up, and I'll see you in 2020.